0: We'd like to learn more about investing, so we turn to Peter Anderson, Chief Investment Officer and Vice President for Fiduciary Trust, based in Boston. Thanks very much for being with us, Peter. You're welcome. All right, here's the scenario. S&P 500 is up more than 13% on a 52-week basis. Forget this three-month stuff. Let's just say rolling one-year returns. Mm-hmm. Um, How do you extract some of your profits safely? Uh, Even as an institutional manager, how do you extract some profits safely and where do you redeploy if you say, all right, 13%, there's no reason to uh, uh, think that you've become a genius?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the best way to navigate through uncertain times, Tim, is to commit to sound principles. So I think what the heart of your question really is, going forward, with all the uncertainties that we have right now, what is the best way to stick to your principles if you have set them early in your investment horizon, and do you make changes? In midstream. And given that there are so many uncertainties and we're having so much difficulty uh, discerning facts from what I would call pure hopes. That this isn't really the time to make major changes, given where we are, what I would call in this, you know, the phases of the Trump administration.
1: You know, Peter, I think a lot of people would probably agree with you, which is the reason why we're not seeing a lot of direction mm-hmm. in stock or bond markets recently. Given that backdrop, are you stockpiling cash? Are you preparing for uh, better liquidity when there is some kind of uh, reality or facts that come out that uh, that spur spur people to action?
2: Well, let me answer it this way. You know, what we try to do is we go back to basics and we say, look, there's a baseline right now. You always have to focus on what do you think the baseline is for, say, U.S. equities? And then you take an observation. You say, where is the S&P right now? And you have to discern what is the difference between where your baseline is. So, for instance, most people would uh, rationally say the S&P 500 is going to return anywhere from, say, 6 to 8% annualized in a year. However, as Pam was saying, when you look at what the return is now with the S&P 500, you have to account for what is that giant gap between what you would say your baseline is and what you're actually observing. And the the large extent of that, in our opinion, is what we would call, you know, the Trump premium, the details of the, the future tax ref, uh, reform, uh, infrastructure, all that. And you have to get a sense of, is that a reasonable premium? And if it is, I would say you stay with your program. If you uh, determine that the premium is, you know, overvalued. then maybe you take some chips off the table. But for our measurements right now, we think as long as you're diversified and you do have reasonable exposure in the S&P 500, I think you stay the course until you get more data.
0: Before you get that data, Mm -hmm. tell us one level down, industry groups and specific cases, if you can, so that we learn what exactly you're talking about.
2: Yeah, okay. Well, first off, let's just talk about how about even fixed income, investment-grade fixed income. That's been getting a bad rap recently because, Pim, most people think it's the equivalent of asking to put your hand into an open flame, right? When the Fed is in a rising interest rate environment, why would we stay in an exposure to investment-grade fixed income? And I think the answer overwhelmingly is because it acts as ballast to the portfolio. So while you can have debates about our spreads, um, you know, value, fairly, Uh, what will happen when rates rise, we still advocate staying in fixed income to a certain degree in case things don't go the way everybody is expecting, and you want to have something that will most likely uh, outperform in a disappointing environment.
1: Well, in fairness, uh, just to give a sense of what the market, the investment-grade corporate bond market has done, it has been an unprecedented quarter, first quarter Mm -hmm. of investment-grade bond sales in the U.S., Mm -hmm. uh, and the debt has preserved its value, uh, actually increasing by 1.4% in that first quarter, even with all of those sales. So it seems like a lot of people, Peter, do Uh, agree with you. I want to just get your thoughts on a front page story on the Wall Street Journal this morning talking about a new proposal at the Fed to do two more rate hikes this year Mm -hmm. and then begin unwinding their balance sheet Mm -hmm. in a a gradual uh, process. My first impression was this would be incredibly disruptive, particularly to the longer dated uh, debt. What about about you? What what was your reaction?
2: Well, I think it is. And, you know, I think it's a little bit uh, premature. I was somewhat surprised that that was reported on, given where we are right now. Uh, Lisa, it seems to me that uh, even with the rate hike, when you see how the 10-year has done, I think it is surprising to most people where it began and where it ended in a rising rate environment. So to actually project that uh, we're going to have two more hikes and then the unwinding, that's a lot. Uh, Things have to go a certain way in order to hang your hat on that and then to make investment decisions based on this. And, you know, this chicken little mentality about bonds – is, is not appropriate when you think about diversified portfolios. So let's assume there are even more multiple hikes. I would still argue that uh, unless you're a pure speculator, to have a balanced portfolio, you still you – know, we're not always right, as we know, and you do have to have fixed income in case you are wrong.
1: Well, and just to be clear, the direction of rates, uh, longer term rates, has been down as mm-hmm. the Federal Reserve raises interest rates on the shorter term. So this has been sort of the surprise. Uh, going forward, do you think that this will continue, that we're going to see a flattening yield curve? We're going to see this sort of lower growth expectation within the bond market, despite yeah. all the hopes that we've seen reflected in stocks?
2: Well, let's just talk about, and here's, uh, let's separate the facts from the hopes. So what we know for facts right now is that there have been two travel bans uh, attempted, and they've been thwarted. The health Care reform has not been successful, and now we're seeing that NAFTA. You know, the preliminary uh, disclosure of that seems to be. I would say most people would would agree that it's it's uh, less. It's been blunted. It's not as aggressive as it has been. So you have to factor that into the sense of did we get ahead of ourselves in November and December, thinking that all this was going to be easily accepted and reflected in the uh, fixed income market as rising rates? I think. Now Now what people are saying is now we have some data points, let's project the success of tax reform infrastructure and maybe we've gotten a little bit too optimistic. And in that case, rates might actually slow down, given that uh, the Trump administration hasn't been as successful as people had originally thought back when he was elected.
1: Peter Anderson, thank you so much for joining us. A pleasure to hear what you have to say. Chief Investment Officer and Vice President at Fiduciary Trust, coming to us from Boston, definitely the conundrum of the time, which is who is right, the sort of uh, incredibly enthusiastic stock pickers or the uh, pretty bearish, persistently bearish bond uh, investors.
0: Well, Lisa Abramowitz, everybody wants to know how many times the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates. And since nobody knows, we try to find people that at least have some thoughts in that direction. And Holly Liss is one of them, Managing Director of Futures and Commodities Group for BTIG, joining us from Chicago. Holly, thank you very much for being on with us, as always. Uh, You've been recently quoted as saying the FOMC is like a U.S. Uh, uh, well, you said air for, you know, uh, air carrier. Um, what do you mean by that? And, and maybe tell us who you're following in that uh, convoy.
3: I'm following myself in that, in that statement. I just think that they're slow to move. They tend to make a decision and they stick with it. Now, we've seen over the past couple of years, they've raised once per year. They raised first in December 2015 once. They raised again in December 2016 once. They just raised again mid March. Now that's not to say that they're only raising once per year, but I think they tend to move on a course of action, and they don't tend to change that decision rapidly, or tend to stop that decision and reverse course. So I don't think that they're certainly moving to ease anytime soon. I don't think we've moved into that direction, but I don't think that they're necessarily accelerating at this point either. And I don't think that they're going. I don't think that the economic data has shown us that they necessarily need to. To raise four times per per year, although we have seen a couple of non-voting Fed members have said that they think that they're going that they should be raising four times per year at each meeting this year, which would imply most likely every other meeting, which is when we get a press conference out of Fed Chair Yellen. Right. So I don't necessarily think that they go from one hike per year to four hikes per year. Which would certainly be a change in direction out of that aircraft carrier. Yeah, (laughs) out of that
1: aircraft carrier. I love it. Holly, you know, last week we heard from a lot of Fed members, and one of the dominant themes was that there is a pretty heated discussion going on right now at the Fed about shifting policy from rate hikes to curtailing the balance sheet and sort of not reinvesting all of the proceeds that they're earning from their holdings. There was a story in The Wall Street Journal today talking about how the Fed is thinking about possibly starting that unwind later this year. How disruptive do you think that would be?
3: Well, I think if they don't give us any advance notice, that would certainly be disruptive, but probably the least disruptive of it, once they start giving us some advance notice about how they're going to be reducing their balance sheet, would certainly be a reduction in, I shouldn't say a reduction in, but certainly not reinvesting the proceeds. That would certainly just be a reduction in the balance sheet by letting those proceeds not be reinvested. It would just be a natural reduction. You'd be using the money, either returning it to the treasury, just not be reinvesting it, it would just be a natural uh, decline in their balance sheet, use the money for something else or just returning it to the Treasury. Right. And and that would just reduce it. They'd give us some advance notice, and then we would all just know that the balance sheet is going away. I mean, it started at a trillion. Now you're up to four and a half trillion. If they didn't give us advance notice, that would certainly be a different story. And maybe if they also gave us some advance warning about what portion of the balance sheet maybe they would let run off first, maybe that would also give us a better inclination about where it would be. As you know, we all had that taper tantrum years ago under Bernanke. And that was yeah. certainly, exactly. And that was sort of uh, an, not an advanced warning. And so we had that tantrum, but if they gave us some advance notice, that would be a little bit better for all of us to get used to that. Right. And that would certainly be a type of hike that we wouldn't necessarily need them to raise rates as aggressively. And, and so that could also be the type of tightening, contraction, that we wouldn't need additional rate hikes?
1: So, uh, you know, at the end of last year after the U.S. election, a lot of analysts were saying, look, we know we've been wrong about the direction of interest rates. We know we've been wrong about Treasury yields. But this time, we really think something is different. Yields are going to rise materially given President Trump's plans for infrastructure spending and regulatory cuts. Now, at this point do you hear from analysts and people you work with well maybe it's it's the same scene maybe we're looking at the exact same picture as we were earlier last year uh just some of the uh, furniture has moved around
3: well and, and it's interesting because we have all heard that that rates have to rise they are on a tightening cycle and Certainly, some people have put line in the sand, 2.6%. That's it. The long-term bear market we've seen, basically, the long-term bull market we've seen since 1980, that'll be over. And we haven't seen that. And we've gotten as close to 260 as you can just within the past month. And we've certainly turned around since then. So it doesn't necessarily have to be. I mean, the markets are going to test that resolve very frequently. And we've certainly been up at 260 just within the last month. And now in 10 years, we're back to the bottom end of that range that we've seen over the past four months, just within the past couple of weeks. So just when you think it's going to get bad, it sort of turns around. And I think that's what we're seeing the past couple of weeks. And the data, Lisa, we haven't seen it be as strong as it could be. And so, I think they're testing the resolve of the Federal Reserve. They're testing the resolve of the markets. And even if you look in future space, We had a lot of investors and traders be very short the treasury curve. They were short treasuries from two years on out to the ultra bonds. And now they've reduced those short positions fairly dramatically over the past few weeks. And I think that's telling you the marketplace does not see as significantly strong data as they did just a few weeks ago.
0: Holly, as a managing director of futures and commodities, can you tell us about gold?
3: Well, you've certainly seen it move around a little bit, but it hasn't gotten as strong. There, were, there was just recently where people were talking about it hitting two thousand dollars, and now we've backed off of that level. So, I think if we're going to twelve
0: fifty one today.
3: Yeah, and if you were going to see inflation, I think you would certainly see it higher than we've seen it recently, and you haven't. Now, the Fed, one of the Fed's favorite inflation numbers is that core year-over-year PCE. It has been well below the 2% level that they'd like to see it. And I think if inflation was going to percolate almost where the Fed would like to see it, closer to that 2% level. I think you would see gold being moving higher, and we haven't. For me, I like to look at the technicals. And right now, that 1271 now you're within $15, 16 of it. But until it gets above that 1271 level technically, and for me, it would need to sustain above that level for at least a couple of weeks, then I just don't see the inflationary pressures percolating in the gold market.
1: Holly, Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Holly Liss is Managing Director of Futures and Commodities at BTIG in Chicago. Uh, Thanks again for joining us. We're going to dig a little bit into the numbers that we've been getting out of GM, Ford, Fiat, Chrysler. Disappointing sales across the board. Uh, Car sales are plunging despite the fact that these automakers are discounting their vehicles more heavily to give a little bit more perspective on how significant these declines and these disappointments are. I want to bring in Kevin Tynan, Senior Autos Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Kevin, what stands out to you about this? about all these reports?
4: Uh, yeah, well, I think I think the auto consumer is probably exhausted. Um, I also think that, see, March is a funny month in that if the weather in parts of the country is particularly bad in January and February, March can be a strong month. Uh, I think we saw some bad weather, at least here in the Northeast, late in March, uh, which probably will delay things into uh, if there was more significant
1: demand. Wait, wait, more- Kevin, hold on a second. You're blaming the weather no, for no, no, something no. that a lot of people have been expecting for a long time. We've seen cooling mm-hmm. demand, and the fact that people are tightening up their credit conditions and their their, their lending standards. No,
4: yeah. no, no. I'm okay. not, I'm do, uh, not do blaming just, the d- weather. Just let it I'm
0: happen, just... Kevin. Let it happen. <laughs>
1: I'm just saying that some of what
4: would have happened in March might just slip into April when we get uh, uh, tax rebates and uh, tax returns are filed. Uh, so I, I agree the, the consumer is probably a little bit exhausted here. I think incentives and inventory are running high. Uh, we'll probably use the next couple of months to bring that down in line. Uh, but I, on the other hand, I think that the the downturn in demand will be good from – if you look at the, the the stocks of these companies in that, it will be a little bit of a test, uh, a little bit of a stress test to see the work that has been done, you know, the, the cost rationalization po- post-2009, to see where these companies come in in terms of operating profit in a period of less than spectacular demand that we've had recently. Well,
0: looking at the stocks right now, Fiat Chrysler down 4%. Look at General Motors. The shares are down 3.5% and Ford Motor down 2.5%. Is that enough?
4: Um, Probably not. But I think, like I said, when you see earnings, you know, you're going to be talking about a run rate on operating income, you know, for General Motors will be in the $2 billion a quarter range. You know, so so is that warrant that kind of downturn or does it warrant something like you're seeing at Tesla?
0: Well, Tesla up five and a half percent.
4: on twenty you know, on on the news that they're gonna hit a hundred thousand units globally in a year, you know, at this rate. So um, I think there's some disconnect in the valuations there obviously. But I think What it'll do for the General Motors and and Ford and Fiat Chrysler of the world is to show that they can still be profitable when demand is not just constantly ramping up and ramping up.
1: Okay, Kevin, um, before we move to Tesla, I want to just keep going a little bit on the GM and the Ford and the Fiat Chrysler. Uh, Yes, this could be a little bit of a stress test, but by all accounts, this dynamic could only get worse given the fact that uh, a whole slew of leases are are set to come up and that will – Basically, flood the market with supply on the secondary market, uh, decrease prices, create bigger losses for some of the financing companies that are uh, that have been fueling this auto purchasing uh, boom that we've seen in recent years. I mean, how can this how can this be a stress test if it potentially will only get worse from here?
4: Well, yeah, you're going to see a lot of off-lease vehicles. And when you when you think about that, though, if you think about the registered vehicles in the U.S. alone, where 280 280 million vehicles, there's going to be 5 million coming off-lease. So is the market big enough to absorb that? Yeah, it, it certainly is. And we're talking about a run rate of 17, 17.5 million vehicles. So The new vehicle market will certainly have to react in terms of pricing and or volume to a slightly more robust in terms of units, pre-owned market, and I think it will. I don't think it's the end of the world in terms of pricing for the industry. In fact, I would say that it's an opportunity for those dealer groups that are focused on the pre-owned market. I think you're getting a lot of late mileage. I'm sorry, late model, low mileage, high tech vehicles coming back off of lease, and it may just cause an adjustment in the new vehicle market. But I don't think in that, especially at retail, it's necessarily a bad thing. That that gap between the two, right? We look at the affordability gap, and it's gotten way out of control. New new vehicles are averaging transactions of $35,000. And with more used vehicles coming back, those prices will have to come down to, to maintain that gap that's a little bit more reasonable.
0: Hey, Kevin, uh, you mentioned 100,000 units at Tesla. Uh, Tesla stock is up 5.5%. Just do the comparison, let's say Tesla versus one of the the big three, uh, so we got the perspective because the stock certainly isn't telling you that today.
4: Right. So if you look at, let's take uh, measures like market cap, where – Tesla is in the Ford range coming up on General Motors, arguably uh, you know a couple billion dollars away there. And if you were to look at Ford, six million units globally and uh, off the top of my head somewhere in the range of eight billion in operating income last year, General Motors was 10 on roughly nine plus million units. So you're talking about 100,000 units with uh, no profitability and cash burn comparable in terms of market cap with companies that are doing six to 10 million units and six to 10 billion in operating income globally. And I, I'm just perfect. Not sure how you That's
0: perfect. That. You did it in exactly the right amount of time too. Kevin Tynan, senior autos analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence.
1: I want to turn to a Senate Judiciary vote that may happen uh, within the next few hours. Uh, senators are considering the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to be the uh, new member of the U.S. Supreme Court. We're hearing things about nuclear option. We're thinking about is there going to be a filibuster to give us a better sense of what we can expect to hear about. Kimberly Robinson joins us now. She's Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg BNA and is currently in Arlington, Virginia. Kimberly, uh, I want to start with with the nuclear option. We've heard a lot about Democrats that do not want Neil Gorsuch to get confirmed. What is the nuclear option?
5: Well, the nuclear option is really just a way to reinterpret Senate rules so uh, that they can stop a filibuster and put forth uh, or vote on the candidate um, with just a simple majority, um, which currently uh, Republicans have.
0: Now, is it possible that they will be uh, going through this uh, exercise uh, in front of the television and, and the public? I mean, will this vote be carried live to the point where it's going to be some uh, end, you know, down to the wire?
5: Well, we actually have several votes that um, will be televised, um, so today we're hearing um, on whether or not the committee will vote uh, him out to the full floor. We expect that uh, they will, so given that Republicans have a majority on the committee and they just need a simple majority to move him on. Uh, the votes that we've been talking about, uh, where these nuclear options might happen, will come sometime later in the week, um, probably uh, on Thursday or Friday, and then we'll he- see about a final vote uh, on his actual confirmation. Uh, Um, sometime likely on Friday. Um, So these will all be things we can all watch.
1: Uh, Kimberly, what have we learned about how much support Neil Gorsuch has among Democrats?
5: Well, it's it's evolving minute by minute. So just today, uh, we saw from a, a handful of Democrats that Republicans are really trying to get on their side. Um, we saw one come out and say that uh, she'll join the filibuster. Um, so there hasn't been much support. Um, only three individuals have come out saying that they uh, or three Democrats have come out saying that they won't filibuster the nominee. Um, Republicans will need to find five more. And um, it's really going to come down to the wire. I
0: Thanks. All right. Well, I guess that'll make for good for good drama. Is there any uh, any thought to the repercussions if indeed uh, the vote uh, he is not confirmed?
5: Well, there has been a lot of talk about whether or not Republicans can change uh, this rule because it has been such an important rule. Um, you know, the Senate is really known as a, a great deliberative body in part because they do things uh, not by uh, by majority rule like they do in the House, but they need a, a number of minority uh, votes as well to get past filibusters. So this could really change things for judicial nominees or the Supreme Court, um, and it could have... The potential to leak over to the legislative side
1: too. Uh, have you noticed a shift in rhetoric or tone after the health care bill that was proposed by the GOP uh, group was didn't come for a vote? Right. Well,
5: you know, I, I did. And um, we saw kind of some shakiness on whether or not Democrats are going to attempt this filibuster. Um, after the health care bill failed, it did seem like they were somewhat emboldened. And shortly after uh, the committee here finished questioning Gorsuch, um, many of them came out um, and said that they were going to try and mount this filibuster. And it seems like they they might be able to pull it off.
1: What about on the Republican side? Is there pretty much universal support for Gorsuch?
5: Yes. Yeah, so this is a, something that is contrary to the health care bill here. All Republicans support Gorsuch and support uh, uh, getting him through without the filibuster.
0: Are there other vacancies that have yet to be filled that you can tell us about?
5: Well, on the Supreme Court, no, this is the ninth seat. Um, however, we do expect that there, sh- there will be some soon. There are a number of uh, Supreme Court justices who are in their upper 70s or 80s, so we anticipate that they would retire soon. Um, so what happens this week with courses nomination could have a big impact on-, on the kinds of nominees we see for those uh, Supreme Court
1: vacancies. What's the biggest argument that Democrats have for not wanting him confirmed? Well,
5: this morning we've been hearing a lot about how evasive uh, the, the nominee Neil Gorsuch was during the confirmation hearing. And uh, so we heard uh, Senator Leahy say that he was being patronizing and excruciatingly um, evasive in his answers. And he said that that really prevents senators from being able to determine you know, his judicial philosophy and his core constitutional um, beliefs, uh, something that they think that they should be considering during this, this hearing time.
0: Well, I want to thank you very much uh, for being with us. Kimberly Robinson is our Supreme Court reporter for Bloomberg BNA, uh, giving us detail about the Senate Judiciary Committee, the vote on uh, Neil Gorsuch his nomination to the Supreme Court.